Today we begin an eight-part sermon series entitled Preaching Christ. It was the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That does not necessarily mean that Paul only taught and preached about the events of Good Friday. But what it definitely does mean is that every text and every topic is seen through the lens of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So throughout this summer, we're going to walk through the Bible. And regardless of the genre in which we are in, the various styles of scripture, we will discover that all of it is about preaching Christ and him crucified. So this morning we begin by preaching Christ in the Pentateuch. You well know that the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It has Moses as its earthly author and Jesus and him crucified as its goal. So I invite you to take your Bible. Turn to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22. I'll be reading verses 1 to 19. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 19, as this morning I preach in your hearing a sermon that's entitled, The Messiah on Mount Moriah. The Messiah on Mount Moriah. Genesis chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. 
Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants. They set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. May God add its richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Some of you might recall that Abraham was 75 years young when God told him to leave his country, his people, and his father's house and go to the land I will show you. The Lord promised Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. The entire world will be blessed through you. Numerous occasions along the journey, the Lord reiterated his promise to Abraham and his beautiful wife, Sarah, saying, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. The only problem is that Sarah was barren. She was unable to conceive. So Abraham and Sarah had no children. On a couple of occasions, they tried to take matters into their own hands and help God out with this perceived divine dilemma, which, my friend, is never a good idea. On one occasion, Abraham said to the Lord, I have figured out a solution. I will just adopt one of my servants as my son. I will build the line and lineage through him. But God said, that's not my plan. It's not my plan for you to adopt a servant as your son. Sometime later, it was Sarah who grew frustrated and she concocted this idea. She thought to herself and she declared it to Abraham, I think the only way for us to build a family is if I give you Hagar, my maidservant. Now, as I read this portion of scripture, I am baffled at the fact that Abraham offers very little resistance to the suggestion that he hook up with Hagar. He didn't say, no, baby, I can't do that. I've only got eyes for you. He sat there and he said to his wife, let me think about, okay, I'll do it. And so he slept with Hagar. Hagar conceived, gave birth to a son, named him Ishmael. Life was all right, but not good. 13 years later, God himself appeared to Abraham and Sarah and said, I will appear again this time next year and your wife Sarah will conceive, give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Isaac. Well, Abraham sighed, Sarah laughed, and God was serious. That next year, when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old, she gave birth to a bouncing baby boy. God was gracious. He remembered his promise. He opened her womb and she brought forth Isaac. Can you imagine Blue Cross and Blue Shield trying to process that claim. This woman is how old? 
She's 90. She's postmenopausal. How is this possible? Yet God reiterated to his servants, this is my plan. I told you, I've got everything under control. I know the future as certainly as I know your past. And so God repeatedly in the story of Abraham just asked two inherent embedded questions. The questions are, do you trust me and will you obey me? Do you trust me and will you obey me? Do you trust me and will you obey me even when it seems preposterous? Even when it seems outlandish? Do you trust me and will you obey me? Life was pretty good. But as Ishmael and Isaac grew, so did the rivalry, animosity, and mockery. Eventually, Sarah said to her husband, Abraham, that slave woman has got to go. And she's got to take her son, Ishmael, with her. Reluctantly, Abraham sent Hagar and Ishmael away. What is deeply ironic is that for the better part of 4,000 years, the descendants of Ishmael, the Arabs, and the descendants of Isaac, the Jews, have been waging war with each other. All because humans said, let's help God out. God doesn't quite know what he's doing, so let's assist him with this divine disruption and all the while God said I've got a plan and I'm going to orchestrate that plan I'm going to execute that plan on my timetable we read in Genesis chapter 21 verse 34 that Abraham settled in the land of the Philistines for a long time finally Abraham is settled down finally he's at home Now, the journey has been long and grueling. There have been peaks and valleys, some fear and some fun along the way. But now, life is calm. Life is comfortable. For starters, Abraham has a happy wife. And you can't put a price tag on that. He's got a happy wife. He's got a healthy, promised child named Isaac. Abraham is enjoying his own health, even though he's well beyond a hundred years of age. Abraham has a lucrative business. He's got a great big savings account. He is at peace with all of his neighbors. What more could a man ask for? Everything was calm. Everything was comfortable. Things were trucking along quite well. Until you come to Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. In a moment, tranquility was turned to turmoil. And isn't that how life goes? Sometimes we are going along in life and things are good, everything is well, and then in a moment, everything gets turned upside down, topsy-turvy. In a moment, you get the bad news from the doctor. In a moment, you get called into the supervisor's office only to hear that your services are no longer needed at the company. 
In a moment, you can get a rejection letter from your college of choice. In a moment, everything that was good, calm, and comfortable becomes very chaotic, topsy-turvy, and uh, tumultuous situation. In a moment, everything turned upside down. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. From the very outset of the story, we know that God is the orchestrator of it. It is God who tested Abraham. A test is far different than a temptation. The purpose of a test is to build up faith. The purpose of temptation is to tear down faith. The source of a test is God. The source of a temptation is the adversary. So this test is not a temptation. The purpose of this story is to bolster and build up faith in the life of Abraham. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. If you allow that sentence to sink deeply into your spirit, you must reach this conclusion. If God can test Abraham, then certainly God has the prerogative to test me. If God can test that servant then God can test this servant. And every test feels like a sanctimonious sucker punch. That's how it felt to Abraham. In verse 2, the test is is, uh, verbalized. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Take him to the region of Mount Moriah. And there, I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. Abraham must have thought that God had made some mistake. Are you serious? To take my son, my only son, the promised son, to take my son Isaac and sacrifice him there and not just execute him, but execute him as a burnt offering. Abraham knows how to do a burnt offering. In order to do a burnt offering, the sacrifice has to be chopped up into little pieces. It has to be burned completely and totally. It's one thing for a parent to lose a child to death. It's another thing for that parent to be personally responsible for the death of that child and to do it in such a vile drastic way I don't think Abraham initially would have thought this is God no he must have thought to himself I had something bad to eat last night I had a bad dream this cannot be of God for how in the world can God make this audacious request dare I say demand of me to take my son the son that's been prayed for for so many years The son that is the promise worth waiting for. The son that's been a long time in the making to take this beloved son through whom the blessing will be rendered and to execute him. Isaac is probably older than we realize, but he's not old enough to be married. He's not old enough to have any children. He has no offspring that can carry on the line and lineage of Abraham. And so Father Abraham thinks to himself, how can this be for God to to give this promised child only to snatch him away? And furthermore, the request of God seems to be in contradiction to the character of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, we will read the words that the pagans do things that are detestable in the eyes of God Almighty. 
For they take their sons and daughters and sacrifice them to their false gods. And this is detestable to the Lord. So how can this request that seems so contrary to his character be legitimate? And yet I must confess to you that there's no debate in this story. There's no dialogue. There's really no discussion. Abraham simply obeys the Lord. We're not told anything about a conversation that takes place between Abraham and Sarah. You can imagine that one, can't you? But we just read in verse 3 that the next day Abraham got up and he saddled his donkey and he gathered his two servants. He chopped the wood, took his son, and they went in the direction of Mount Moriah. To say that Abraham got up the next morning does not mean that he woke up. I don't think he slept all night. How could any father get a wink of sleep on a night like that? I think Abraham tossed and turned all night long, and yet he got up resolved to follow God because he was saying to the Lord, I will obey you and I will trust you. He got up, saddled his donkey, gathered two of his servants. Abraham personally chopped the wood for the sacrifice. I can only imagine that with every swing of the axe, he must have checked with God once again. Are you sure about this? They made their way towards Mount Moriah. We're told it took them three days. It's 50 miles from Beersheba to Mount Moriah. The three-day journey was not for God. The three-day journey was for Abraham. For Abraham to get to the point where he was resolved and determined to be obedient to the word and will of God. Even if it cost him his one and only son. They made their way. And as they traveled for three days, they must have had questions, conversation. They must have shared memories and shed tears. They made their way to the foot of Mount Moriah. Abraham says to the servants, y'all stay here. We're going to go over there and worship. We will go and we will come back. The only recorded conversation takes place between Abraham and his son Isaac. Between the father and the son. It begins in verse 7 when inquisitive Isaac uh, asks the question, uh, Father, yes my son, I see that we have the knife and I see that we have the fire and I can feel the wood that you have so uh, graciously uh, strapped to my back and I know that everything's in place but where is the lamb? That question, where is the lamb, will echo through the pages of the Old Testament. It will find its fulfillment and its answer in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29 where John the Baptist will see Jesus and say, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Simply in our story, Abraham responds to his inquisitive, questioning son, God will provide the lamb, my son. They made their way up atop Mount Moriah, and it's Abraham who constructed the altar, and then he bound his son Isaac to that altar. I want you to see that Isaac willingly and voluntarily laid himself down on the altar. 
we think that Isaac is a, a cute five-year-old preschooler with bouncing locks of brunette hair who makes his way up the mountain. We think of him as some youngster, but most theologians agree that by this time in the story, Abraham's probably 115 years old, which makes Isaac 15 years old. Remember, he's got to be strong enough to literally carry the wood on his back up the mountain. No five-year-old can do that. It would be like taking three steps. Dad, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I can't do this. I'm so tired. Are we there yet? No, this is a teenage strapping young man who takes the wood up the mountain and in this condition, Let's just be honest, he's in a place where Isaac could outwhip his old man. Remember, his dad is 115 years old. And he could outmaneuver him and outrace him back down the mountain. If Isaac did not want to be laid on the altar, he wouldn't have. He could have outmaneuvered and outshoved his father. But he went willingly. He laid himself on the altar. My friend, I I want you to see the Messiah on Mount Moriah. Because Jesus, like Isaac, voluntarily and willingly went to the altar, the cross of Calvary. It's not that God the Father had to drag him kicking and screaming. Jesus went By his own will, Jesus went in obedience to the divine command of God. He went because of his love for the Father and his desire to seek and to save you. Jesus, like Isaac, went to the altar and willingly laid himself down. I'm sure at this moment, not only Abraham, but Isaac, they both know the story. They both know the word of God. They both know the will of God. And they both know that this must happen. And Father Abraham is crying. You can well imagine tears are streaming down his face. He's looking into the eyes of his son. And Isaac, his son, is also crying. Yet he's looking back at his father as if to say, Dad, I trust you. I don't understand all of this, but I trust you. Friends, can you imagine with me the anxiety that's pulsating through the heart and mind of Abraham and Isaac I mean Abraham is there and he is the father who's going to slay the son very reminiscent of what the apostle Paul will say that it was God's will for the son to be slain it was God himself who uh, who took Jesus to the cross and Abraham is there and Parents, I realize there are times when you tell your children, I'm going to kill you. But you really don't mean it. It's not something you really mean. You just say it to inflict the fear of God inside of them. But can you imagine in this moment, Abraham really is going to have to slay his son. He is weeping. He raises the dagger in his 115-year-old hand. It trembles and it shakes, not just because of age, but because of anxiety. And he's standing there and it is shimmering against the Palestinian sun. And Abraham realizes he just wants one fatal blow. He just wants the first strike to be the fatal strike. He cannot imagine having to slice and dice his son. He wants to go right through the heart. And so with the other hand, he must cover the eyes of Isaac. And with this hand, he raises the dagger in the air. He's about to thrust it through the 
heart of his son. At that last possible moment, it is the angel of the Lord who says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Don't touch the boy. Don't harm him. For now I know that you will not withhold anything from me, not even the one and only son Isaac. What a dramatic story. Abraham, Abraham. Thought the Bible, whenever you see this double repetition of a name, it's for emphasis. So the Lord will say, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. Samuel, Samuel, and eventually Samuel will say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Jesus will say, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is needed. In Acts chapter 9, it's the resurrected Christ who will knock Saul off of his high horse and say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In our passage, it was Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy, for now I know that you will not withhold anything from me. Abraham was jolted back into reality. He looked up, and there he saw a male lamb caught in the thicket by its horns. He saw a ram, a male lamb, that was caught in the thorny thicket that the thorny thicket was there on the head of that male lamb. Uh, this is a double type of the Messiah. Not only is Jesus like Isaac in the sense that he willingly laid his life on the altar, but Jesus is also like that male lamb for he had a crown of thorns that were shoved on his brow. And this uh, male lamb, Jesus, he was uh, executed in place of as a substitutionary atonement so that we would not have to die. So Abraham took that male lamb. He placed it there on the altar and sacrificed it instead of Isaac. And the angel spoke again. Now I know that since you would not withhold anything, not even the one and only, God will increase your descendants so that they'll be as numerous as the stars in the sky, sand on the seashore. It is Abraham who says, our God is Jehovah Jireh. He's the God who provides. And on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. They offer the proper sacrifice. Abraham and Isaac went back down Mount Moriah. They caught up with those two servants and they retreated and returned back to Beersheba. What an amazing story. It's one of the most dramatic stories in all the Old Testament, if not the entire Bible. I mean, it's a dramatic story. It, it draws you in. And, and even if you've read it umpteen times and you know how it ends, it still causes you to get to the edge of your seats. It still causes you to, to, to be uh, kind of just drawn into the story and be enamored by it. It's an amazing story. This morning, there are two takeaways that I want you to jot down as you think about the Messiah on Mount Moriah. The first one is this. That faith in God is not only declared, but it's also demonstrated. Faith in God is not only declared, but it's also demonstrated. 
God has called us to a show and tell faith. It's not enough for us just to tell God how much we love him. We've got to show God how much we love him. Because our faith is a show and tell. It's not only declared, but it's also demonstrated. Keep in mind, this story is given to us as a test that God gives to Father Abraham. And the purpose of God giving Abraham a test is the same purpose of God giving any of us a test. It is to bolster our faith. In fact, James, the brother of our Lord, will say that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. God uses this as a tool to bolster and build up faith. This faith that must not only be declared by our lips, but it must be demonstrated in our everyday life. In fact, the angel says to Father Abraham, now I know that you will not withhold anything from me, not even your only son Isaac. Certainly in the life of Abraham, Isaac was his most prized possession if you could call it that. It was the one thing that he loved more than anything else. He had been praying for Isaac for 25 plus years. He had been longing for a child with his beloved wife, Sarah. He he knew that the promise was coming and yet he didn't know how it was gonna uh, be accomplished and, and God provided. And so Isaac was the apple of his daddy's eye. And the Lord says, now I know that your devotion to me and your love for me is even greater than your love for your son, your only son. I wonder, what is the one and only in your life? What, what is that, the one thing that you value more than anything else? The one thing that you treasure more than anything else? The, the one thing that you say unto the Lord, Lord, you can have anything in my life except, please, don't tinker with this or that. Maybe your one and only is your spouse. You say, Lord, I love you, but please do not take my spouse away from me prematurely. I don't know how I can handle it if my spouse had cancer, if my spouse died. Lord, you can take anything, but please don't take my spouse for he or she is my one and only. Or maybe it's a child. Maybe you say, God, you can have anything that's under my umbrella. You can have anything at my discretion, except don't take my children from me. Please help them be close to me geographically. Help them be close to me. And please don't take my children halfway around the world to uh, you know do the gospel or, or be a missionary or something like that but please you can have anything just not my children take their children take his children but not my children my children are the one and only maybe the one and only is your dream job I mean, you just landed that job. You got that promotion at work. And man, this is the one and only. This is the thing that you've been longing for. You've been praying for. And you say to God, God, you can have anything that's, uh, that, 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 that's in my life except my job. Don't take my job. Don't take my truck. Don't take my boat. Don't take my this. Don't take my that. Don't take my bank account. Don't take my money. You can have anything else, but don't take this. What is your one and only? And God says to Abraham, Now I know this faith is not just declared, but it's demonstrated. Because you were willing to give up your one and only son, Isaac. God is not toying with his servant. He is testing his servant. And what God does to Abraham, God can surely do to us. And when God tests us, it's painful. When God tests us, it is sometimes even shocking. 
I heard several years ago that God uses tough times to pull faith out of us for others to see, thereby helping the others place their trust in our God. God uses tough times, tough times in your life, things that squeeze you. He uses tough times to squeeze you, to pull faith out of you because others are watching you. And when they see your faith that is declared and now it's on display, when they see that faith that is declared now being demonstrated, then they too trust our God. You think to yourself, well, who is watching Father Abraham? And the answer, his son Isaac. The whole time, young Isaac, even though he's 15 years of age, young Isaac is watching his father and the faith of his father. Mom and dad, let me just tell you, you always have the eyes of your children on you. They are watching you even when you don't think they're watching you. They're always watching. And when tough times come, let faith be squeezed out of you so that when they see you, when coworkers see you, when other church members see you, when other parents at the rec field see you, when other people in the grocery line see you when other drivers see you when you are squeezed in moments of difficulty let them see your faith and by them seeing your faith on display then maybe they'll put their trust in our God because faith is not just declared faith must be displayed for all to see there's a second takeaway And the second takeaway is simply this, that faith in God is always rooted in the hope of resurrection. Faith in God is always rooted in the hope of resurrection. Three times in our passage, Isaac is called the only son. That's very reminiscent of John chapter 3, verse 16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It reminds us that, that Isaac, his life was rooted in the hope of resurrection. That Jesus' life is rooted in the hope of resurrection. That Isaac was the one and only. Let me also remind you that in verse 5, Abraham said to his servants, we will go worship on Mount Moriah and we will come back. Abraham believed in the hope of resurrection and his Christology is not as developed as your Christology. Yet Abraham believed in the hope of resurrection. What did he say to the servant in verse five? We will go worship and we will come back. How can we come back if one of the we's is gonna kill the other we? How in the world can we come back? The only answer is the hope of the resurrection. If you think I'm going a little bit too far, let me just remind you what the author of the Hebrew letter says. For in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, it says that Abraham reasoned or reckoned that God would bring Isaac back from the dead And that's exactly, figuratively speaking, what he did. Because think about it this way. Isaac came from a dead womb. And Abraham thought, if God can bring him out of a dead womb, 
then certainly God can take him to the brink of a dead tomb and bring him back again. Because God is in charge of all things. Do you trust me and will you obey me? Those are the questions that are embedded and implied all throughout Abraham's life. Do you trust me and will you obey me? And Abraham concludes that if God can bring Isaac out of a dead womb, then he can certainly bring him back from a dead tomb. Not a big problem, not a big deal. Because Abraham's faith was rooted in the hope of resurrection. That's why Abraham says, our God will provide. That's the phrase Jehovah Jireh. And it is stated that on this mountain, our Lord will provide. You do realize that Mount Moriah is the same geographical mountain where Solomon will build his temple. And you do know that it's not too far geographically from this mountain of of Moriah where Jesus will be crucified on the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, Mount Calvary. And you do realize that when Jesus comes back, and he's coming back one day, brother and sister, when Jesus comes back, he will step foot right there on that same mountain. And any place you see uh, this mountain, it reminds us that God himself will provide. On Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, it is God who provided the male lamb, the ram, caught in the thicket by its horns. Throughout the sacrificial system of Judaism, it is God that provided the lambs for those hundreds and hundreds of years to be sacrificed on the temple mount. And in Jesus, the lamb without spot, blemish, or defect, the perfect lamb of God, it is this Jesus who was executed on your behalf and his precious blood covers over a multitude of our sins. And on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. So our faith is rooted in the hope of resurrection. And we know the person who has been raised from the dead. His name is Jesus the Christ. And so Abraham is testifying what we believe in, that our faith is is rooted in the hope of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he says, our God will provide Jehovah Jireh. So my friend, when God tests you, Jehovah Jireh, when you experience a trial, Jehovah Jireh, when you experience pain, Jehovah Jireh, when you experience discomfort, Jehovah Jireh, when God is calling, Jehovah Jireh, when anything happens in your life, Jehovah Jireh, because our God is a God who provides and our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and its righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. Why? Because he is Jehovah Jireh. He's the God who provides, and he provides a Faith that is rooted in the hope of resurrection of Lord Jesus Christ. So even in the first book of the Bible, we find Christ and him crucified. We are not imposing this upon the text. No, the text by the power of the Holy Spirit is revealing this to us. That yes, even in the first book, and not just in the first book, but every book, points to Christ and him crucified. Every text, every topic.
every scenario, every situation can only be made sensical through the lens of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So the faith that God is pulling out of you, he wants you to declare faith in him and demonstrate faith in him. And the faith that you have on deposit from God is a faith that is rooted in the hope of the resurrection of Christ. This morning, do you know this Jesus is your Savior? If not, today can be the day of your salvation. Today, if you're here, and let's be honest, uh, there is something that's going on in your life and it is eating your lunch. It churns you. It keeps you up at night. Oh, my friend, this morning, I want you to come and cast all your cares upon the one who cares so very much for you. God just might be using that thing, that scenario, that circumstance to build faith in your life. As God leads, let's respond in obedience. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation and we pray that you are honored and pleased and glorified. And we ask for you to speak and we, your servants, will obey. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.